thank you to our choir. You know, as I stand up this morning, I do a little bit with a heavy heart because uh, earlier during the Sunday school hour, Nancy Palmer had uh, uh, had a spell here out in the hallway and, and was taken to the hospital. I wondered if anyone could give me an update. Do we have that? Um, we, we know that uh, Eric and Randy and John are all concerned and the whole family and, and uh, we want to make sure that uh, we hear back from their, them and if we do from someone, if, if one of our ushers could check for us uh, there at St. Dominic's and we can perhaps get an update from them. Um, mothers, wow, mothers, it's your day. Um, but uh, if, if you're a female and you don't have any children, I don't want you to feel left out. And, and guys, I don't want you to feel left out either. I mean, how many of you have a mother? Yeah, okay, good. See, that's, that's, that's it gets just about everybody. Um, but we give thanks for our mothers today. We, of course, Courtney and Ants have had a baby this past week, and uh, that's been exciting. We have more that uh, yet to come here in our congregation, and we continue to pray for mothers of the past and mothers of the future and mothers of the right now. But uh, it's good to be with you on your special day. Today we continue our series on the living stones of a spiritual house. And as we take a look at another passage from uh, 1 Peter, we want to be thinking of ourselves as that living stone. Each one of us is invited to be one of the living stones that makes up the spiritual house. That comes to us out of 1 Peter chapter 2. You might want to refresh your memory on that. Take a look at 1 uh, Peter 2 verses 1 through 10 and you'll get an outline of kind of what that looks like of us as the living stones. But today we take a look at the first chapter, verses 3 through 9, after Peter introduces the, the uh, book and addresses it to the churches in Asia Minor, he goes on to say these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By His great mercy He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you've had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. For you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of of your souls. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, as I mentioned, we're still into our Living Stones series. And if you haven't seen the picture that's on the sermon notes for today, I want you to take a really close, hard look at the Sally Howard Memorial Chapel over near Mentone, Alabama. 
otherwise in that area known as the Rock Church, especially to counselors from Camp Alpine and DeSoto who have made their way over there to this little chapel. You see that the rock on the outside of the church is part of the church's architecture. It is a church built onto the rock. Uh, What a beautiful image for the church. And what I thought would be the most appropriate image I could find for living stones of a spiritual house. The uh, stone is just as present, just as present inside as it is outside. And in the rock on the inside are interred the ashes of Sally Howard, chapel built by her husband after her untimely death. But we are living stones being built into a spiritual house. Last week, we didn't have much chance to talk about the background of First and Second Peter, so I want to share just a little bit about that uh, today. The first and Second Peter are part of the general or Catholic epistles. Now, there are seven of those that are the... Le- and now, some people say eight if you include Hebrews, but typically they're thought of the last seven books of the New Testament except for Revelation. So that's James through Jude. James through Jude. They, uh, it's a, this label, the general epistles or the Catholic epistles, is applied to these letters because they are some of the most widely accepted authoritative letters that were circulating in the early church uh, back in those early days. There were other letters that were not received as readily and were rejected, not received as authoritative, and didn't make it into our scriptural canon. But these seven general epistles were widely accepted. The second thing is that they are pastoral in character, particularly these two letters, First and Second Peter. They're pastoral in character because they were written during a time of persecution, and were written as an encouragement to the churches in Asia Minor. Not just to them, but to the Christians in Rome who, were, who were, um, uh, have fallen under such terrible persecution after the burning of Rome at the hands of Nero. But they're an encouragement. Christians were being pulled from their homes, taken off the streets, beaten, tortured, put into the arena against lions, simply because they had been accused of burning Rome, of bearing the responsibility for that. Now, the rumors were passed around by Nero, who, at whose hands the responsibility probably lay. But their pastoral in nature, and meant to be an encouragement to these people who were enduring such terrible persecution. Third, now while there is some disagreement about the origins of First and Second Peter, many scholars believe that First Peter was written from, from Rome by Peter himself, which makes it very special. Written about 67 A.D., immediately following the first persecution of the Christians by Nero, following the fire, and it was written not only to them, but to those parts of Asia which were sure to come under persecution as well as that persecution of the Christians became widespread and engulfed the whole area. Barclay says about this, I, I like this quote from him in talking about the origins of the letters. 
But for our own part, we see no reason to doubt that the letter is indeed the letter of Peter himself and that it was written not long after the great fire of Rome and the first persecution of the Christians and that its object is to encourage the Christians of Asia Minor to stand fast against the onrushing tide of persecution engulfing them and seeking to take their faith away. So... It's a letter intended to encourage. But it's also part of a larger body of work of New Testament, uh, New Testament letters and books. In, uh, again, intended to encourage, but reflecting several theological ideas that we need to grasp. C.H. Dodd identified several of these and, and put them together. I, I've turned them into a list of four, though I think he had five. The first one is the idea that a new messianic age has begun, which comes through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. Everything was new. It was all new. And that's why as the letter begins, we get this idea of a new birth through a living hope because of Jesus' resurrection. So as it begins and as he lays it out in front of us, we realize that everything has become new. The whole world has been turned upside down because of who Jesus Christ is and how he has made an impact upon the world. The second thing is, that the, is the idea that by virtue of the resurrection, Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. His is the name above every name. So that at the name of Jesus... Everyone should bow, declare him the great Messiah, the Son of God. So as we look at Jesus, the resurrection puts a whole new spin on things. It is because of the resurrection and the power of the resurrection that the early church found its real strength. And when the great preachers of the early church went and spoke in those places where they'd never heard of Jesus before, it was the resurrection that stood at the forefront. And it was the resurrection, from the resurrection, that the power of the early church came. Third is the idea that these messianic events will shortly reach their consummation in the return of Christ in glory in the return of Christ in glory. Now, if you look at these letters, you really get the impression that they anticipated the return of Christ to be almost immediate. They expected it to happen, uh, well, like soon and very soon, as we sang just a few moments ago. They expected it to happen just in the coming days. In fact, as in in Acts, they pooled their resources and handed them out as people had need. They really were doing that as a temporary sort of stopgap measure to help take care of people until the return of Christ. They expected not to have experienced death before the return of Christ. Now, we realize that it's been a long time since that happened and since these letters were first written. But still, the return of Christ is a tenet of the Christian faith, which we still hold to be true. Just realize it's taken a bit longer than they had first hoped. Fourth is the idea that these things are full enough reason to call humanity to repentance. And then, humanity is also offered forgiveness the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the promise of eternal life. Lots of theological ideas that come to us in these general 
epistles. Now, from the beginning to the end of the letter, the second coming is in the forefront of the writer's mind, and it's the motive for steadfastness in faith, for the loyal living of the Christian life, and for gallant endurance in the midst of suffering, which have come to them, and they know will come upon them. But today becomes one of those times when it's probably helpful just to take it verse by verse and do a little bit of expository preaching. So let's take a look at some of the verses and see what we gain from them. At the outset, we find a common greeting pattern that we see used in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. In the Old Testament uh, era, prayers... Many times in in, in some of the prayers of the Passover, we hear those words, Blessed art thou, O King of the universe. The prayers begin that way. It's a common greeting pattern, a common way to to, uh, salute God at the beginning of a prayer. And in reference to God in the Old Testament, you'll find uh, reference to God, the father of Abraham and the father of Isaac and the father of Jacob. Over and over again, they remember who they are through the repetition of these sorts of phrases. But in the New Testament, and here in First Peter, we get those words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we get that kind of salutation, that kind of greeting, not only in these books, but in the books of Paul. And it's repeated over and over again in the prayers of the church. But then, verse 3, By His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection. I love what Barclay said here. To the ancient world, the Christian characteristic was hope. And it came from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was how the Christians were known. They were people of hope. Whenever the bad times came their way, they were people of hope. Even when they lost everything that they had, even when it was all taken from them, even their very lives, they were people of hope. The Christian world would forever be changed by Jesus. The Christian would forever have Jesus beside him or her, this Jesus who even conquered death. What was there left to be afraid of? Nothing, because they could always have hope that this resurrected Christ would be with them every step of the way. And then move on to verses 4 and 5. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Simon Peter reflects what we find in so many other places, from Paul and from Jesus, calling the faithful to trust not in the passing nature of earth, but in the eternal nature of heaven. Take a look at Matthew 6, 20, where Jesus is saying, But neither lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consume, nor thieves break in and steal. Not not treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. In John chapter 14, Jesus says to him, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you where I am, you may be also. I'll go there and bring you to myself. So as Jesus says those things, he's saying, put aside the passing nature of the earth and take on the eternal nature of heaven. In our own funeral liturgy, we we get uh, reference to 1 Corinthians 15, and it really lays it out clearly, where it says, listen, I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Don't worry about the passing nature of the earth. Remember the eternal nature of heaven. Carl Holliday said about this, this inheritance is no ordinary legacy such as land or prosperity or political security. It's rather a heavenly inheritance that nothing can destroy or spoil or wither even though it lies in the future as a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. It's protected by divine power. It's reserved for those who live in faith. Verses 6 and 7, in this you rejoice. It sounds like something to rejoice about, doesn't it? Even if now for a little while while you've had to suffer various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. In this world, Trial and affliction are not meant to take the strength out of us, but to put strength into us. Even though we experience difficult things in our lives, they're not meant to sap our strength away, but to give us strength. Here then is the goal for standing up when life is hard and faith is tough. We can stand up to things because of what we look forward to, because pushing back in every test strengthens and purifies our faith. And we can take heart that at the end of it, Jesus is waiting to say, well done, well done, good and faithful servant to those who are faithful. It's almost impossible, though, for Bible Belt Christians to understand the meaning of these verses. These verses were written at a time when people were being torn from their homes, torn from their families, beaten, killed in most torturous type ways, taken into the arena with the lions just for sport. It's hard for us to understand what that must have been like for those early Christians and then what the persecution must have been like, and even the threat of it 
for those churches in Asia Minor to whom Peter wrote. These days, here in Mississippi, here in Madison, not many lives are lost because of faith. Maybe the biggest persecutions that we have to deal with are our own peer pressures. But facing the arena or facing your own denials of your faith. Can you imagine denying your faith and knowing someone else who stood up for it and was killed? Those were the choices people were making every day, either to give up their lives for their faith or to carry the guilt and the shame of denying it. We're much more likely to give in to insidious denials, claiming faith, yet living with no more moral fiber than anyone else around us, or living lives before our children that deny the very faith that we espouse. Hmm. But take heart even in difficult trials. Verse 8. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Time and again, the New Testament witness reaching into the early church and even into our contemporary life becomes real. It is a witness that cannot be disproven or denied. You see, there will always be logical argument in opposition to faith. But the personal witness cannot and will not be denied. That's why your personal experience is so important. I asked his permission to share about this today, but Harry easily was telling me about it in his most recent heart episode. Having heard this voice, and he wasn't really sure that he was interacting with the people that were around him. He, He was aware that he was awake but he was hearing this voice saying to him Harry you're going to make it Harry you're going to make it over and over again Harry you're going to make it thank you friend for sharing that witness with me and that's the kind of personal witness how do you say no that didn't happen it was very real spoken into his life What you can't argue against is the heartfelt personal witness. Paul on the road to Damascus who said, Jesus came to me that day and a bright shining light took my sight from me. And I was visited by a man and something like scales dropped off my eyes. But Jesus spoke to me that day. And even though I've persecuted the church, Let me tell you who's the Lord and Savior of my life. John Newton experienced it, and he wrote the words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind. And he was blind. But he says, now I see. John Wesley on Aldersgate Street, May 24th, 
1738 experienced his heart strangely warmed and it changed who he was and he became a different man and his life became a different life and the church became a different church because Jesus Christ had visited him. For me, it was simply hearing the words, if it's worth his dying for, it's worth my living for. In the 10th chapter of Luke, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to them privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that prophets and kings desired to see what you see but didn't, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Acts chapter 10, Peter says to Cornelius, We are all witnesses to all that he did, both in Judea and Jerusalem. We saw it. We heard it. We watched it happen. Jesus said to Thomas, Have you believed because you've seen? Blessed are those who don't see, but yet come to believe. Jesus said those things.